Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning to worship with you and spend time with you. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm looking forward to reading some scriptures and talking about the Gospels with you. But first, why don't we just invite the Lord to guide us in this process with a brief word of prayer. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear God, thank you for giving us your word to study, Lord. <clears throat> thank you for guiding us in the truth of who you are and how you've called us to live. Every time we commit ourselves, Lord, to understanding you better, to understanding what you've taught us about ourselves in the world, God, we are tremendously blessed. And so we thank you for a community like this, Lord, and a study like this to hold us accountable and to point us back, Lord, to the truth, to the explanation and the meaning of life, Lord, Jesus Christ, as explained and detailed in the Bible. And this morning, as we read your word, Lord, and study who you are and who you, how you've called us to live, we just ask humbly that you would guide us in that process and help us to understand with clarity and help us to apply what we learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how should we respond when people tell us that Jesus isn't very special? All of us at times in life have encountered people who have, let's say, not shared our same enthusiasm for Jesus. People who have perhaps seen how we think that Jesus is not only great, but someone who we should commit our entire lives to. Not only do they not agree with that, but they kind of think that Jesus is ridiculous. That the thought that he is who we believe he is, is like crazy, foolishness. In fact, it's possible that at some point you've even encountered someone who knows a lot more about the Bible than you do who's come to that conclusion. Somebody who studies the Bible in its original languages, who studies the history of the time when Jesus walked the earth, and other religions as well. And this religious expert in whatever context, whether it was in a documentary on TV or in a classroom at school, has shrugged off the Jesus of the Bible that you believe in. Has just said with maybe a laugh and a wave of his hand, oh no, no, that's a bunch of fairy tales. None of that is true. And when that happens, when someone who knows more about the Bible, more about religion than we could ever know, what should our reaction be? I mean, what should we ultimately think and, and feel when someone announces to us that Jesus, he's nothing special? That might have been a question that some of Jesus' followers wrestled with, because when Jesus was here in the flesh 2,000 years ago, that's exactly what happened to him. The religious experts, they had a few run-ins with them, and then they gave their public declaration of who they believed that Jesus was. And let's see what they have to say. It's in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3.
And we'll start reading in verse 22 of uh, Mark chapter 3. As we do, listen to what the religious experts of his day have to say about Jesus, starting in verse 22. It says this, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. We'll stop right there. The scribes, these are the theologians of Jesus' day, the people who know the Word of God backwards and forwards and who teach it to the people. They come and they say, Jesus, far from being the Messiah you think He is, He's working for the other guy. He's possessed by Satan. That's what the Beelzebub reference is. And the reason he's able to cast out demons like you've seen him do is because Satan gives him that power. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's not exactly the pronouncement you were hoping to hear from the religious leaders of your day. Not at all. I mean, after all, following Jesus started off really great. If you go back a few chapters, you see that almost from the moment he begins his public ministry, he gains a lot of popularity. The crowds are very impressed when he heals, heals someone with a deformity, so much so that they can't even publicly enter a city because so many people want to come and hear and see and touch this Jesus. Surely, they must be thinking, this is the guy, the Messiah, the anointed one, but you don't just want the crowds to follow your spiritual leader. You don't just want your person who you believe is the expert on religion to be popular. That's nice. But you also want them to be legit. You also want them to check out with the historicity and with the Bible. You want it to be real. And unfortunately, after several run-ins, after privately planning to kill Jesus, they share what they believe to be true about him. Not only is he not special, but he's a threat to what God wants to do in our world. How should the followers of Jesus respond when this happens? When the one they're expecting to be the Messiah is suddenly pronounced as not legitimate by those who would know Maybe you've had to respond at some point when someone much more religiously expert than you has told something like that to you. I had a friend who took a class on the New Testament, and she loved it. It was at her secular university. And every time I'd see her, she'd gush to me about just how wonderful the class was, about how this professor, oh, I love him, she'd say. He knows about the history of the first century area. He knows the original languages. And he can answer any Bible question I have. Not only that, but he'll tell me what all the different groups of Christians believe about it. It's amazing, she said. And so you might guess what I asked her next. My curiosity supremely piqued. I said, well, is he a Christian? No, she said, he's not. Oh, 
kind of made me think. Kind of made me ponder for a second how this guy who knows the Bible far better than I know it, not to mention the languages and the history, not impressed. Doesn't think that Jesus is even close to who Christians believe he is because of what the Bible teaches. And perhaps you've seen a documentary online where, where someone pretty smart said something similar to you about Jesus after exploring the artifacts and the, the original manuscripts and the culture of the time. Of course, it's all a bunch of fables. None of it is true. That's what my history professor told me my first year in college with a smile almost gleefully as he broke this news to the class of 18-year-olds. I'm sorry to tell you, the Bible is a book of fables. How do we respond? How did the early followers of Jesus respond when this first gut punch to Jesus' ministry happened? I don't know, but as we keep reading the narrative pieces here, I think you probably wouldn't be surprised if they responded with feeling a bit discouraged, a little bit discontent, disquieted, when the one who they believed is the Messiah, who's doing miracles, who's gaining fame, is publicly declared possessed by Satan. Because you see, it's not just religious experts who tell us that Jesus ain't nothing special. But it also happens a lot closer to home. Sometimes it's our own family members who will look at our faith in Jesus, look at our commitment to living our entire lives to please and honor Him. And it's the people who we want to understand us and agree with us and love us the most who actually roll their eyes, shake their heads, and laugh at what we're willing to sacrifice and what we're willing to do to follow this Jesus. I know that because it happened to Jesus himself. In this same story here, not only is Jesus called demon-possessed, but his own family comes. And let's see what they have to say about Jesus. We're going to skip back for a moment to verse 20 for some context, then we'll skip forward to verse 31. So in verse 20, it says this, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Skip down to verse 31, because they do eventually show up. It says, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. We'll stop right there. So, if you're following someone, hoping that they're the Messiah, 
the spiritual leader of God's people, and they're popular, and they teach with authority, and they're doing miracles, that's all good. But not only do you not want them to be called a phony and demon-possessed by the experts, you probably don't want their own family to come and say, no, 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 he's crazy. And that's exactly what happens. The people who know him the best are the least impressed. In fact, given the series of how the events unfold, it's possible they were trying to get to him before the religious leaders did. Why? Because even though it would be embarrassing to us if this happened, it was much more embarrassing when it happened to Jesus. Because Jesus, unlike us, was living, or many of us in this particular area, was living in a culture that's a group identity culture, meaning your family, they're more, far more important than you are as an individual, and an honor-shame culture where you seek to bring honor to your family and avoid bringing shame to your family. And so scholars think that as his family comes to him to, to come and put him away as quickly as they can and, and hide him because, oh, he's crazy. It's probably because they were terrified that if the religious leaders got there first and told the whole community who they believed he was, that it would bring unbelievable shame on their family. Some even surmise that the entire family might have been afraid of being excommunicated from the religious life of the community because Jesus wouldn't stop claiming, preaching, doing what he was doing. And so, for us, it would be not good. For Jesus, for his own family, even worse. And it gets worse because, of course, Jesus is the firstborn male in his family, and his father, apparently, as you read it, sounds like he's not alive. Sounds like his father might be dead. Which, again, in their culture means as the firstborn male with no father, it's specifically his job to protect the honor of the family and to advance the honor of the family. And so you see this and you believe this in that culture, and you see his family come and say, not only is he not doing his job, but we have got to hide him before he brings the worst shame imaginable on this family. If you're his follower, how do you respond to seeing that playing out in front of you? To the very person who you're hoping is the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that all of Scripture has been telling us is coming. But now, his family says he's crazy. Maybe, maybe your own family thinks that Jesus is a bit crazy, that he's not who you believe he is, but far from it. And maybe when they see your commitment and devotion to him, they scoff, they roll their eyes, and they tell you you should be living differently. A friend of mine's family found out that he was supporting missionaries overseas 
several hundred dollars a year. He was keeping it quiet, keeping it a secret, because he knew that they would think that that was crazy. But one day he made a mistake, and he left a document out, and they were able to see where he'd been sending hundreds of dollars a month, and boy, were they angry. What do you think you're doing, they told him. You need that money. Look at your life. You should be taking care of what's important. You should be saving and paying bills, and the whole lecture. How should we respond? When the people who we want to love us the most, our own family, are the people who are looking at us and saying, Jesus is crazy. What are you doing? Something like that could very likely have been in the minds of the closest followers of Jesus as these events unfolded. But there's one more event that unfolded here in this same span of narrative that might have just added to the question. How do we respond when people tell us Jesus isn't special? And that is, in response to all that's going on, especially his rejection by the religious leaders, Jesus decides to change how he's doing ministry. He decides to start teaching in parables. Stories that contain powerful lessons of truth that aren't always obvious what they're saying the first time you hear them. They think he starts doing this so that those with hard hearts won't understand, but those who are seeking the truth can still hear and learn and grow. But when you're a follower of Jesus and you're hoping he's the Messiah and the one thing he still has going for him is the crowds who are coming to hear and see him, you're probably not hoping that he starts speaking in riddles. <laughs> and yet, listen to what happens starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says this, Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. And so he got into a boat, and he sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. We'll stop right there for now. So shortly following what the religious leaders said about him, he starts using parables for the first time. And now we hear he's using them even with the crowds. And we know it must have been a bit confusing because as you read on there, you see even his closest followers come to him and they go, after he shares a parable, and they say, so what did that mean? What were you trying to say there? And we want to maybe judge them when we look back in time and have been taught about the parables, but the reality is, I don't think they're the only ones who found Jesus a little bit confusing at times both for us personally and for those who we're trying to explain Jesus to. 
Have you ever been trying to understand something in Scripture or a theological concept and just thought to yourself like I have, God, why didn't you just make this clearer? Why don't you just spell this out A to Z exactly the way I wanted to that makes sense to me in my language, in my culture? God, could have been a lot easier. Why is the Bible so thick? Why does it sometimes take study and patience to understand it? (laughs) Well, it's possible that when you've wrestled with that question, it's kind of made you wonder, how should I respond to this? confusing element here. Or maybe it was when you tried to share Jesus or spiritual truth with someone else, and you saw the confusion in their face, in their eyes, as you tried to explain Jesus to them. I used to listen to my father time after time, gently sharing about his life and his family, and sometimes his faith with one of his colleagues. And every once in a while, I'd catch them moving on to a spiritual conversation, and I knew that my father was slowly trying to share Jesus with him in a natural, friendly way. And as I walked through the the living room one time, I heard my father sort of explain what he thinks about Jesus. And I just heard his colleague shake his head and say, I don't get it. He dies in the end. That's the problem I have with the story. And of course, they kept talking, but I think so many of us have had that experience, whether it's us feeling a bit confused at times about what God is teaching, or whether it's the confusion in the eyes of others as we try to explain to them. And I don't know for sure if the disciples were asking themselves, boy, what do we do with this? What do we do with this person who we're hoping is the Messiah? who's just been rejected, called crazy, and now he's teaching in riddles. But the way the story unfolds next leads me to believe that they might have been wrestling with that question. Because what happens next is a familiar story where Jesus sets out across the Sea of Galilee with his followers. The story starts in uh, verse 35 of chapter 4. And as we start reading here in verse 35, listen to how this boat ride with Jesus quickly unfolds. It says this, starting in verse 35. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So not a great start to a boat ride at the end of a not a great day. On the same day, it says, as all this has happened, they get onto a boat with Jesus. They go out into the Sea of Galilee, below sea level, where violent winds would sometimes come in a second and start a storm out of nowhere. And that's exactly what happens. It's so bad that water 
starts piling over the sides of the boats and filling them with water. So we can understand why they're a bit afraid, probably screaming back and forth to each other, maybe trying to get the water out of the boats, trying to figure out what they need to do to survive. And let's see how Jesus responds. It says in verse 38, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So how did Jesus respond to the waves that are billowing over the sides of the boat? His disciples are, are terrified for their lives. They've been crushed inside already, watching their Messiah be called crazy and called a phony. Now they're about to be crushed literally by waves from the Sea of Galilee. How would you respond? Apparently, Jesus responded by taking a nap, exhausted from his long day of ministry. He doesn't even stir. Instead, this is what he does. In verse 40, it says this. Or, I'm sorry. In verse 39, it says this. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? He wakes up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And there's instant calm. He uses the same similar words he used when he cast a demon out earlier in the story in the book of Mark, which means this could have been something even spiritual that was happening. And the, the storm that's raging suddenly stops in a, in a heartbeat, in a second. Total calm and silence. A minute ago, they're screaming directions at each other, and now all you hear is their heavy breathing. The sound of the water dripping from their faces into the puddles in the boat. It says they look up at Jesus and they say, who is this? They're afraid, it says. They were afraid of the sea, but now they're afraid, filled with fear and awe of Jesus. They say that even the wind and the waves obey him. And he says, do you still not have faith? How should we respond when people tell us that Jesus isn't special? We should respond in faith because they said the same thing about Jesus when he was here 2,000 years ago. Sure, 
we can investigate the historicity. We can learn all there is. The truth will never hurt our faith. We can ask the tough questions. But we shouldn't be shaken. We shouldn't be surprised that there are religious experts who will tell us that Jesus is nobody. We shouldn't be caught off guard when our own family tells us that Jesus is a madman if he is who he said he was. And we shouldn't be too worried when we can't always understand every bit of his message the first time we hear it or read it. Because he told us right here from the very beginning that his own disciples, from the start, wrestled with that question as they saw these things unfolding in front of them. And his response was, have faith. If these things happened, we shouldn't be surprised if they happened again. We shouldn't be perhaps quite as caught off guard, as confused, as worried as maybe his earliest disciples were, as they were hoping that he was the one, not a phony and not a fake, but the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. And so, I'd like to consider now that we've looked at this story in the Gospel of Mark, I'd like us to consider six principles for reading the Gospels for spiritual formation. Uh, I borrowed these from Dr. Walt Russell, and these principles are helpful for not only understanding this story, but the Gospels in general as you read them for spiritual nourishment. And the first one he's, he gives us is this. He says, because the Gospels are narratives, we should emphasize the broader context when reading. And so, since the Gospels each tell a story, it's helpful if you don't just isolate a single event in the Gospel without asking yourself, well, what came before this and what comes after this so that I can catch a complete thought within the story. So, for example, in our passage, when we wanted to read about this boat ride that Jesus took with his disciples, it starts with the phrase, on that same day, which causes us, of course, to ask, well, what else happened on that same day? And it would seem like if you trace the narrative, at the very least, it was on that same day that his family called him crazy, that the religious leaders called him demon-possessed, and that he began teaching in parables that even his closest followers couldn't understand. And so it's helpful to do that whenever you read the Gospels and for spiritual nourishment, to look at the, what precedes and what comes after, and how does it perhaps fit together to tell that part of the story. Second, the Gospels demand some background information regarding history and culture. So, the more you know about this world that was very different from our own, where Jesus grew up and walked and talked, 
the more you'll notice in the details of the Gospels as you read. Now, in our own story, it shed light on what was happening with his family and with the religious leaders when we noted that Jesus was living in an honor-shame society and in a group identity society. It brings more light onto what was going on in that particular event. And so, if you can do some historical and background learning about the culture and time, it can help you notice more details of the story. Third, the focus of the Gospels is on Jesus, not on us. So, not a surprise, but each of the Gospels tells the story of Jesus. And so, sometimes when we come to it, we go straight to, what does this story say to me? And certainly, we can be ministered to personally through the Gospels. But if the story is about Jesus, we might do, we do well to first ask and see what it's teaching us about the main character of the story and how who he is and what he's called us to can apply to us right now. Fourth, one of the primary goals of the gospel writers is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, not to prove that he is God. So it's tempting when you read through the gospels to see Jesus doing things that only God can do and to sort of think, wow, he's showing everyone that he's God again. And that's certainly true. However, there's so much more going on than just that. In fact, so many of Jesus's miraculous events, his healings, so on, they point back to the Old Testament promises about the coming Messiah and his kingdom. The coming Messiah would would have, bring a kingdom with him on his arrival where there'd be plenty of food. And Jesus multiplies food. The Messiah's kingdom in the Old Testament was said to be a, a, a kingdom where there would be really good and plentiful wine. And Jesus turns water into wine. The Messiah's kingdom would be a place where there would be the healing of, of physical ailments. And of course, we know that Jesus does quite a bit of healing. So is he God? Absolutely. But is there so much more to what's going on than simply that one element? Of course, because the stories prove that he is the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament, which comes along with everything that goes along with the Messiah. Five, with four different gospels, we should do comparisons of the various gospel accounts when appropriate. So, each gospel writer wrote that particular gospel to a particular audience for a particular reason, and so it contains a particular message, a particular emphasis, interpretation. And sometimes if you're wanting to know, well, what is, you know, this particular gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, what's he trying to say here? Well, one way that helps you clarify that is you compare the other Gospels, which have a lot of similar events, and you see, how is this Gospel unique or different? What words does he choose as he tells this story? What does he emphasize or leave out? And as you compare it, the differences of the individual Gospels can sometimes be highlighted 
and help you understand that particular gospel's point more clearly. And so it helps sharpen our focus of the interpretation of any one gospel when we compare it sometimes against the others. And six, we need to understand the centrality of the kingdom of God in the gospels. Jesus is constantly teaching about the kingdom of God. In fact, in Mark, he begins his ministry by declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so if we understand what this kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is that he's talking about, it's going to help us to understand a lot more of the gospels. And it turns out that the average Jew living in the first century, based on their understanding of Scripture, was expecting the kingdom of God to come immediately as soon as the Messiah arrived and brought all of these awaited promises about the Messiah's kingdom with him, including some of the ones we already mentioned. And when Jesus came, he seemed to bring this conflicting message, because on the one hand, he would say, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is here, and they would see it. The food would multiply. The people would be healed. The wine was made. But then other times, he seemed to have a very different message. He, he taught them to pray, for example, your kingdom come, your will be done, almost as if it wasn't here. And he spoke about, and he taught and spoke about a future kingdom. And so what we believe is that it was both, is that Jesus both inaugurated or began this new reign of the Messiah when he came. And we are, we are sharing and bringing people into that kingdom of God now. But he will also return, we believe, one day. And when he does, bring the kingdom of God in all of its fullness eventually. The conclusion of the story is a new heaven and a new earth where we live with God and with each other forever. And so if you can understand what the expectation was, and you can understand the surprising element of Jesus' announcement of the kingdom, that yes, it's here. Yes, he came to deal with sin and usher in the kingdom, but he came to deal with it by laying down his life as the suffering servant who covers over sin and to rise from the dead and give us new life so that we can spread the message that the Messiah has come and that his kingdom is here and that he's coming again. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's so refreshing when we realize that you never told us it would be only ever always easy to follow you. It's so enlightening when we put ourselves in the shoes of your disciples and we watch them puzzled. We watch them ask difficult questions. We ask them wrestle, Lord, with all their hopes and dreams and expectations of who you are. And God, we learn from them and we learn from you as we study your life in your word. And so thank you again for places like this that help us to point ourselves, our interests, our desires, our questions back at you, Lord. Because without you, what is life? Who cares if there is no meaning, if there is no purpose, if there is no ultimate hope? But God, you provide us with these things in your word. 
And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.